Herald of Steel beckons. War on the horizon. Chaos reigns supreme. But who will save us? Beckons of the Herald of Steel is a 5th edition homebrew campaign. It is a high fantasy and old school flavored campaign run by me, the young Rognard, and my friends. Let's meet those friends now. I am Anthony Santiago, and I'm playing Norhill Hammerstone, Dwarven Fighter. I'm Jared, and I'll be playing Jarzak, the Orc Warlock. I'm Ryan, and I'm going to be playing Klika, the Goblin Sorcerer. I'm Veronica. I'll be playing Anton, the Human Cleric. While many prophecies are written, our story has yet to be completed. Follow us into adventure. <laughs> Go ahead. Ask a question. Did you have a question? No? We're not going to tool yeah, on Dan in the Ronnie opening? Go. Yeah, Ronnie will be back. Who cares? Do we really need Ronnie for the podcast? Maybe she'll well, listen to this episode. Probably not. Anyway, uh, welcome to the... Uh, what, what's the what's the name of this podcast again? Welcome back. I'm Grognar the Young, the Young Grognar, kicking your tail live in the Beckett's of the Herald of Steel campaign. This is... Dungeness. <laughs> you know, you needed to get the horn in there. Just the... Dungeness. But this is the... Lord's uh, adventure series, and we're in the middle of the quest of uh, vengeance. In the last episode, since this opening has taken a whole year, uh, in the last episode, our party fought a group of strange metallic horrors who could fly and were super spooky and happen to have a very similar likeness to the party's own. Uh, they were led to a strange location just outside Gnomish lands where they were uh, laying down quite a swath of destruction on all of the uh, gnomes in their little homes there uh in Quarrydale, but uh their friend that led them there it seems was Jaden from the court of queen alvere derivar uh very strange but after battling these strange metallic beings who had totally sweet magical powers that made clica totally stink um we found that Jaden had strangely uh markings on him some sort of infernal markings uh and well now Jaden has one head less than he used to and the party still has to figure out what they're going to do about the Dwarvish homeland. Uh, they have to still finish up their meeting with the gnomes and the very fun little halfling at the uh, circle of the staff there. Council of the staff, rather. Um, but yeah, pretty much I imagine we leave off with the party rounding up the gnomes now that they're safe, letting them go back to their homes after help putting out the fires and the uh, waylay of destruction and all that. And I imagine the party's just going to head back to where they came from in the city, uh, hopefully find um, some sort of peace there and make sure that everything's okay on that side of the fence. Unless you guys had anything else you wanted to take care of while you were still amongst them. Is there anywhere no? we could properly bury Jaden's body? I don't know. I don't, I don't believe Anton has any knowledge of the infernal shack. I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, can I do a religion check to get some idea of just uh, something a little more exact than just infernal? What do you, uh, you mean, like the actual like dialect or, or whatever? 
Yeah, just to get some idea, if I can get any idea of like what it actually says, or do I, or because I don't can I? speak infernal. I mean, you can you can roll a religion check to kind of see like the dialect or, or something like that. But I mean, Jarzak is pretty able to tell that a lot of these runes are, are I mean, the uh, infernal script here written is dictating sort of possession and it's sort of um i don't want to say like an infernal equivalent to like a yaya spell but something that kind of forces somebody onto a quest or like a march something to limit their inhibitions and kind of force them to the will of whoever created it and all the markings on here seem to label the queen herself but it goes under something of a different alias so it's like the name is clearly elvir derivar but what's weird about it is it often interchanges it with another name that you have never heard before and one that is pretty new to you. But that is Call of Sky. Okay, I relay that to everyone as, as I see Anton trying to look at the look at it and I'm just like, yeah, I'll translate. <laughs> I mean, from what you can tell, the writing here does appear to have fiendish origins. So it's not necessarily um, de devilish, but instead it seems to be of demonic roots. The writing style is much more without some sort of like uh, established prose. There's no sense of like balance to the writing. There's no sense of like evenness to the hand or anything. Like this is just a bunch of scribble scratches all over the place. It looks like feverish writings is i guess what you could say okay i'll relay like all those fine details as well to the group okay it's disturbing yeah very disturbing and then anton wants to see if there's a way that we can bury the body i don't want to leave it laying out there but yeah um I guess the best way you could go about doing that would be to essentially hire some of the halflings and the gnomes of the village here to dig a hole. But it would seem that sitting out here in this burning village and trying to bury the body right about now is not going to be the most effective use of your time. But giving instructions to these people, having the position that you do in this area, it seems like they'd be more than willing to prep a burial site so that when the time comes and you can actually bury it, the, you know, the people here will be more than helpful. Like, they'll preserve the body in a polite manner. That way, when you guys have the free breathing room to do so, you can come back and respectfully do it. You know what I'm saying? Got it. Depending on how many it takes, I'll give them each a gold piece. Yeah, Maybe I mean, I would imagine with the fact that they saw everything that happened from, you know, running around in the panic and everything, the ones who saw it and the ones who witnessed you guys fighting them off, the ones who are, you know, destroying the homes, they're more than willing to do it for freezies just out of respect for you guys. But yeah, the site around here is many of the buildings in the span of time that you bought for the people, they were able to get bucket teams to putting out a lot of the fires and all the destruction around here. Granted, you guys came a little bit later than you could to salvage a lot of this, but it does seem like, the day is not lost. You know what I mean? Much of this place is still recognizably what it is. So it's not, it's not too far gone. But at this point, um, you guys uh, are free to head back to the city of Enton and hopefully 
explain what you saw, maybe give a little bit of relay for the information and get on with vengeance to hopefully put this leg of things to rest before, I guess, figuring out whatever is going on. So would the party like to leave now in the night? Yeah, yeah I think so. Okay, so with the uh, sun setting over the ocean and with the party seeing the uh, the leftover embers of the burnt buildings and the smoke rising up into the dark purple sky, they head back riding on their mounts as well as fancy doggy mount uh, along with the rider back to Enton and arrive back with a windless and warm night um, darted, uh, I guess I'd say marked pretty much only by moonlight, starlight, and fireflies and a little bit of wetlands you travel on the way to Enton. But upon reaching the city, you can see that much uh, of the guards have already been set up in positions at the walls around Enton. And as you guys are maneuvered into this place, uh, it's about probably 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. It's like the dead of night. And as you're led back to the fancy dome where the meeting is held, uh, you guys are let in quickly and you can see that all of the gnomes and the halfling of the council are all well enough still here hanging out and ready to continue business. But as you guys travel back in through the strange little teleporty wibbly doodly, um, you guys um, are welcomed warmly by uh, our friend there, the halfling who Aldo Felthessel there. And he welcomes you all warmly, but seeing the blood still kind of stuck to your clothing and the smell of wood smoke on you guys. He gives a bit of a pinch to Klika and he says, I think you missed a spot. Klika panics, just starts casting, mending and prestidigitation on everything. All the gnomes begin to pull out their stabs and magic wands. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Get them! But, um, yeah, and so at this point, the Gnomish Council, one of the members of the Colored Council here, stands up and he says, what news do you have from the distance? What of the villages? The villages will be all right. They were coming for us. They wanted to send a message. What was that message? Well, that they know our faces very well that they can strike at us anywhere, and that they've got uh, the Queen of Amaroth in their palm. And so with that, the uh, gnomish lady here in indigo robes, she shakes her head very uh, sorrowfully, and she kind of lifts her head up from her little sorrowed face, and she says, this is a difficult time for all. I think it's safe to say that we need to hurry and figure out what we're doing here. But I have to say what's on all of our minds. And with that, the one in the red kind of gives a nod like he's going to speak. And the indigo-robed gnome lifts her hand up delicately and she says, I think they already know where we're headed with this. While we wish to have an alliance with your people, I'm afraid, Lord Hammerstone, your presence is a liability. And it could be dangerous for everyone just to have you around. Any of you. Any of you at all. If they're willing to go to such great lengths to try to smoke you out like rats, I can only imagine what they'd be willing to do with the army that you said they have. And for that reason, you may stay here for a few more days. But unfortunately, we don't feel comfortable having you around. I understand. 
I, the last thing I would want is to bring more danger to your people. And so they kind of lean in at this point and say, but where exactly will you go if not back to the kingdom of Amaroth? Uh, you know, he sort of uh, thinks, uh, uh, tugging at his beard for a moment, uh, looks back at his party, you know, just uh, with a sort of uh, stop me if I start to say too much. We do have an open invitation uh, from the king of Ashkabello. We could cross the sea there. Can I get an insight check from the party? Three. Five. <laughs> Good. Thirteen. What did Norhill get? The party uh, minus Norhill. Uh, that's going to be a... This was an inside check? Yes. Seven. Okay, so Anton's really the only one who can tell. Just from the tension in the room, everybody sees. But Anton can tell a few of them shift a little bit uneasily and eyeballs kind of dart back and forth amongst three or so of the council members when you mentioned a open invitation with a certain somebody across the seas. And so they all kind of just sit there in silence and they say, is this an invitation as a political figure, Lord Hammerstone? Or is this an invitation as a mercenary it's hard to tell uh the letter didn't say exactly uh what the king's needs were and with that uh, now it becomes a lot more apparent to everybody in the group as they openly look shifty-eyed back and forth at one another and they say so be it we trust you on your word lord hammerstone we know you would not march into a calm and peaceful people's place and ask of them alliance only to ruin things. Our trust is as old as our people's and our trust is as true as the stone we have crafted our lives from. We wish you good luck on your journey, but unfortunately before you leave, I assume the matters of vengeance are still at hand. Have you made your decision of what you wish to do? Of course, I think that creating the rushed weapon will be our best bet. And so a couple of members nod their heads agreeingly and a couple of them shake their head side to side as if like this wasn't the right idea. The uh, alchemist one is the one who seems most excited before drawing his face back to a state of like, oh shit. And so with that, uh, with that uh, I imagine Anton with the same insight check, you can see that he definitely has a bit of a more drawn-in body style right now where he's kind of pulled himself a little bit tighter into his robes and crossed his legs and crossed his arms. So he's very much so shut off from the rest of the room here. And he's just kind of sitting there like, a good idea, a good idea indeed. Um, and so with that, The uh, group, I guess, having said that that's where you would go, they are welcoming you guys to stay in noble chambers. 
um, you'd be able to stay here comfortably. And in the morning, they're going to have a couple of uh, field scouts, a couple of rangers to lead you to the base of the mountain where they assume the dragon is currently living. Uh, does that work for everybody? Or did anybody have anything else they'd like to ask? Um, stuff for the internal party. What did you say? I just have stuff for the group when we can get oh, okay. alone time. Okay. Uh, Norhill would also like to request uh, provisions for the journey. Uh, so food and water. Okay. What about Klika and Jarzak? Oh, all set. Okay. Yeah, I don't think Klika has anything to ask here at this point. Okay. And so with that, they lead you to the center where you guys all kind of teleported in. And after adjusting the staff a couple of notches and removing it, a small circular stairwell seems to appear beneath the center of the circular dais in the, in the middle here. And you guys can tell that as all the members with the colored robes get down from their little chairs and begin to shake hands amongst themselves and sort of agree that it was a good meeting and could have used a little bit more fart noises and fireballs, uh, they all begin to proceed down the stairwell as well. And as you guys enter what appears to be something of like a middle America mall down in here with multiple levels and open balconies, tons of chambers and rooms and stuff like that with open sweeping like views and gardens that overhang. It looks like an entire football field's worth of like architecture is down beneath this place. Somehow, some way, but it also seems like you walked down a stairwell that was probably only a flight or two, like two stories at the most. But you guys have apparently come down about three, three or so stories down. So this place has got some strange, weird, magical illusions going on. But essentially, you're in a mini mall of gnomish and halfling design and uh, one of the members of the council here, the one of the uh, the one of the red robes, Mr. Rudaloo, he goes to lead you guys uh, in the direction of what appear to be noble chambers, which is basically, I would say it almost reminds me of like an ancient Greek sort of setup with an open room with a nice little fountain, some flowers and things growing all over the place. Little tiny bits of berries and fruit are growing naturally off of some of the little plants in the center. And everybody's room has a nice sort of uh, sliding curtain that seems to fixate to the floor and to the ceiling, giving privacy. But this whole place is open and breezy from a wind that clearly does not come from underground, but it's gentle and zephyrous in a warm and inviting way that seems perfect for sleeping so as they guide you into the room Rudaloo gives you guys all a bit of a nod and he wishes you all the best of luck saying I personally would never want to be in your position on this but I think we all can agree that what you're going to do is certainly the best and between you and I as he looks amongst all of you I think it's about time maybe some forgiveness and some apologies were exchanged. But that's not really my business to talk about. And there's probably better gnomes to speak with, but time is of the essence. And he coughs a little bit. And as he does, a small metal clinking noise, or sorry, a glass tinkling noise happens as something falls out of his robe pocket. Uh, I mean, his, uh, his sleeve on his robe there. And he looks at the ground and he says, Oh my, what a mess. Well, hey, uh, you there. And he points to Cleek and he says, how would you pick this up? 
and he scuttles off as fast as gnomish legs could carry him and he runs out of the place and as he closes the last curtain behind him the curtain closes and in a strange technicolor weird swirl of colors you see before you what could only be described as an ocean view with the night sky overhead and the moon is bright enough to illuminate the center chamber but not so much that it would keep anybody awake and so with that he's gone and on the floor are four little like strawberry sized glass vials with a red swirling liquid inside of it so what do you all do Well, you know, new place, new things to clean. And Kleeka just picks the stuff up off the ground. Okay. And so after picking them up and looking at them, they're all identical. Um, and each and every one of these seems to be an openable vial filled with that little red liquid in it. Uh, they're not going to turn us into gnomes, are they? <laughs> no, strawberries. Even worse. But... Uh, the next quest. Strawberry quest. Um, but no, as you shake them around and look at them, pop them over, pop them open for a quick sniff, they seem to be healing potions, just of an incredibly small size. Guess Lika will pass one out to everybody, pocket one for herself. Like little five-hour energies, but they're instead <laughs> life. Yeah, very good. And so with that, um, yeah, you're all free to go to sleep. Did you have uh, questions for the internal party, as you mentioned before, Mr. Anton? Yeah, I, I guess as we're all getting ready, Anton just kind of turned the group and toward Narrowhill, and he's like, and he's like, if it comes to, we must travel to Askabellum. Do you plan to bring all the dwarves along with us? <laughs> Leave it to a dwarf. When given a simple invitation, he brings 400 guests. I thought it was a plus 400. <laughs> no, I think that it would be best if the dwarves wait here until the halls are livable again. And the role of leadership has been set in your absence. Indeed. And there's a clear line of succession and people who can rule in my stead. Damn. I imagine Norhill says that just as, as matter of factly as you did. Yeah. Uh, I guess Anton's just wondering. So I hope if we ever have to go to Azkabalum, it's not in the same state we're seeing over here. Let's hope they're in a much safer state. A less desperate situation would give us a chance to you know, regroup and plan our next move. And I doubt that the Herald of Steel is much of a naval power. The ocean will give us a bit of space. Keep away from yeah. his agents. Just forget about everything over here. But, okay. Was there anything else you guys wanted to discuss? No, I have a Anton just has a feeling to himself that eventually they will have to go to Eagle Heart. But Ronnie, what did we talk about with internal monologues not needing to be outward? I'm kidding, but 
Yeah, I mean, you could even vocalize it. I don't know. I mean, would Anton be so afraid to say, like, I got a bad feeling we are going to have to go see? That feels like something Anton could say. Well, it's just, it, he's just thinking, like, we're we're going to do all this stuff with the hall. And he's just worried we already had one visit. We have no idea when it will happen. And that will definitely throw a wrench in the gears if we're trying to take down the Dwarger. Like the like the gnomes said, we're kind of the focus here. They worry about re- uh, our part in this plan. That's one of the reasons why I chose the option that I did, based on you know the description of the weapon that they think they can make. They gave it's something we can shut off and leave, rather than need to fight a protracted battle against the Drogar. Fair enough. Okay. Anybody else have anything to say? Jarzak and Kleek are just hanging out solemnly. Kleek is just taking in that nice ocean view, you know? Yeah, the illusion is, like, scarily, like, perfectly done. Like, this is very alarming how well the illusion is made that, you know, after the guy had closed the curtain there, like, it is one solid wall of just the distance like you can't see any seam or anything like that so you know the small smells of like salt water in the breeze are definitely waiting in as well every once in a while the sounds of like like a goal or something like that in the distance letting off their annoying little noise there you know so it's it's definitely pleasant Jarzak, <laughs> do you think we could uh fish off of this <laughs> think, uh... <laughs> It's ideas like these that that really shine the light on how important you are to this this group. Throws a harpoon through the curtain. <laughs> uh, grabs <laughs> grabs out his fishing gear. Let's try. Okay. I've never, I've never uh, caught illusion fish, but I bet you they probably taste good. <laughs> they probably taste like whatever you imagine. Is Jorzak actually getting his fishing gear at the ready? Yeah. Okay, so as you toss your line out into the uh, curtain there, it carries through the curtain and splashes in the water in the distance. Klika flips out. (laughs) Klika, so excited right now. Uh, I don't. I I thought it would just like hit a wall and fall. (laughs) Imagination fish. Imagination fish. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not trapped in here, are we? Could you imagine? They're like, here, I'm four healing potions. Good luck. (laughs) I don't know. Did you check the door? The door's gone. (laughs) Looks like the door's the ocean. I mean, there's enough of a seam line on the side that if you try to fish your hand to the corner, you could probably pull it back. But it'd be like peeling back like like wallpaper that was kind of pulling off. You know what I mean? So you'd have to finger for the seam there, but you know. Yeah. But yeah, so as Jarzak continues to fish like that, you start to realize that while the sounds are there, while the textures are there, the temperatures and everything, there's no fish to be gotten. And as you pull in the line, there's not even water on it or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? So it seems like it is just such a well-made little illusion that you could probably reach your feet over the edge and put them in the sand. You could probably do that sort of thing. But pulling your feet back, there'd be no sand on them. 
You know what I mean? Clica, this is this is the cleanest beach you're ever gonna see. You're not gonna track sand into the house after you put your feet here. Hmm. is just looking at the end of Jarzak's line and wondering if the imagination fish is there or not. <laughs> it's like we just haven't spent enough time here. Yeah. But okay. Just not uh, imagining it hard enough. Damn it, Jarzak. So Try my best. With that, um, the party goes to sleep, unless anybody had any nighttime things they wanted to talk about in private. Nope. All right. So the party goes to sleep very restfully, gets back all their stuff, wakes up in the morning and sees in the distance that the uh, curtain has changed to a like a pine forest. And as the sun is rising warmly, all the dew seems to be making that nice wet earthy smell as you guys wake up and the light delicate sounds of birds in the distance chirping and small critters thumping around in the uh, grassy undergrowth out here seems to waken you all very, very warmly and softly as it does. And eventually the little curtain pulls back and a small series of breakfast items have been laid out, including the eggs and the meats and all that, uh, as well as a small bundle of rations for the group for what appears to be a two-day journey. But what ended up happening with the uh, war dog I was riding? I mean, they just I, took it back I to the stable. It? Okay, that's good. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure Clique just didn't like dump it Grand Theft Auto style, just roll off as it <laughs> slides into a wall, just completely forget about it. Just blows up. <laughs> like, oh my god. Like we're racing for pinks. But anyway, um, so with that and uh everybody eating the nice little Corridale breakfast here, um, eventually two halflings peruse down the stairs, come over to your little apartment complex here, and stop with a little knocking at the stonework of a door, I guess an entryway here. And before you stand Caracol and Margay, and Caracol and Margay kind of present themselves in a tada style fashion and Caracol, the male of the two of them, he seems a bit more reserved with his arms crossed, but Margay couldn't be happier to be there. And she says, she's like, wow, did you guys see that cool uh, curtain that they got set up in here? She's like, I snuck in here one time. I swear, if you keep fishing hard enough, you'll get that fish. But I don't know. And then the uh, brother of the two of them says, quitter. <laughs> hey, he just didn't roll high enough. But with that, Caracol just shakes. Caracol, <laughs> that's the point. Uh, Caracol shakes his head a couple times and he says, "I keep telling her it's a programmed illusion, but she just doesn't believe me." And she says, "Well, of course it's a programmed illusion, but you've never tried illusion fish. How do we know what it tastes like?" And he's like, "It doesn't taste like anything. We've been it, over it. It would taste like whatever you imagined." And with that, Caracol just kind of shakes his head. He's like, but that just supposes whoever made it would have known what you would imagine upon creation. That's just too much reactive magic. And Margay says, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, guess what? You guys are the luckiest group of adventurers this side of, well, whatever's going on up north. We have signed up to assist you in finding some sort of cave network it is. She pulls out a scrap of paper and she says, a dragon and she looks up slowly and caracol says why don't you read these things when we pick them up and she says i don't question the work i just do it well that's why we get work he says 
yeah, we're the only idiots who signed up for it. And she says, well, I figured if a job was going to be posted in the dead of night, requesting the utmost of services for a group of strange adventurers from afar, it had to be these weirdos and points almost insultingly at Jarzak and then pulls her finger back and says, I mean, weirdos is a hard term to use here. Tall people looks over at Klika and says, nah, weirdos, I think works just fine. So with that, we do know the way to get there, but we won't pry. We're also not going to die for this. So we'll get you as close as we can and we'll be waiting for your return. But I, uh, look, she looks over at Margay. I mean, at Caracol. Caracol looks back and he says, yeah, I didn't want to have to be the one to tell them, but as the logistics manager out of this mercenary duo, I do feel obligated to explain to you that uh, many people have gone to this location. Many people have sought the magical gemstones within. And, uh, well, and Margay steps forward and she says, and many people have had their skin peeled to the bone. All their armor chewed to pieces and rusted. <laughs> And she just sits there kind of gargoyling her tongue out of her head. And she says, but I don't imagine you guys are going to mess up on that. What exactly are you doing in the caves? Hunting the dragon. And so with that, she burps like out of like shock and looks back at her brother. And he says, I told you we shouldn't have done it. I told you you should have read the note. And she says, all right, I did read the note. I just thought it wouldn't be that bad. You're hunting the dragon. And Caracol just shakes his head disdainfully. And he says, we're going to the entrance. About 500 feet away, and that's as close as I'm going to get. And with that, Margay says, I'll, I'll look inside. I'll see what they got going on. So anyway, are you guys ready to go or what? Indeed. Uh, your services yeah. are most appreciated and your limitations reasonable. Well, I'll pretend that's not a short joke. Let's get a move on. And so with that, she starts parading out of there, like actively with an imaginary little uh, parading baton as she just like... And just starts walking. Caracol looks back at you guys quickly enough that his braids dangling from the back of his head kind of jingle a little bit. And you hear the beads clack. And he looks back at you guys and says, I meant it when I said 500 feet. I ain't getting anywhere near there. You can bring her if you want to, but... All right, you're not allowed to bring her with you. I know she's going to try, but you're going to have to just make sure she doesn't. Pat her on the nose a couple times. She'll hiss and she'll leave. But with that... He turns on foot as well, and he starts heading up the uh, stairway. And as you guys head up what appears to be two flights of stairs, you travel up about 30 or so feet up, back up to the circular dome, where you are transported back to the entrance. And with that, Caracol and Margay both have their mounts at the ready, as well as a dog carrying packs. And you guys are all able to go to the stables and gather up all your gear before leaving. Was there anything you wanted to do before leaving the city of Enton? Yeah, I think Klika's gonna write one last letter to uh, the queen. I don't even know how she's gonna get it there or if anyone will send it, but she's gonna write it and just have it. Like she's gonna keep it? Yeah, I think for now. Like if she can find someone who's willing to go there, that's fine, but she kind of doubts that's the case at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could probably pay a, cor a courier probably like 20 gold and they'd bring it into the city and drop it off somewhere with somebody sneakily, but still. 
Yeah. It uh, yeah, it wouldn't be impossible to find somebody to do it. Yeah, Clicker will do that then. Did you want to tell everybody what the letter says? Uh, yeah, it's just it's gonna be like really brief. Just um, all it's gonna say is if you're in trouble, we'll come for you. But that's it. Okay. Signed by Klika and the not so knightly Norhill. And so with that, uh, um, Derek Hallmark very pointedly signed Lord of the Halls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. In large like, I'm just working on it. Just a big old wax signet of the freaking halls, too. <laughs> Newly renovated. Um, but anyway, as the party mount on their various mounts, the horses and the dogs, uh, you guys proceed out of town, generating quite a lot of points and stairs. And as you guys proceed past the uh, wharf, uh, getting the rest of Caracol and Margay's things on the way out of the city, you guys. Um, I mean, you see the coastline, and for what it's worth, it is rather beautiful out there with the twinkling of the sun over all the different waves here. Still early enough in the morning that you get that really bright kind of twinkling that glitters over each of the individual ripples there, making almost a mosaic of brightness. And as you guys pass out of this town, you could swear you hear some large voice bumbling in the distance, something about playing a game of stones, but it might just be your ears playing tricks on you. And so as you pass out of the city gates, um, you travel for about a day's time heading towards the mountains in the north, the Keratos Mountains, that is, um, before coming to a stop about midway in the forest. It's a bit swampy out there. You pass by some wetlands, um, but it's dry enough where they managed to set up a campsite. So what would you guys like to do for your improv of traveling on this day into the next morning? Do I have to pick at random? What do we got? It's just, it's been so long since we've done improv travel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've always had like big groups we've had to run with. Uh, so I'll definitely uh, defer to Klika going first. That's fine. <laughs> On my turn, I want Ryan to go first. <laughs> Does Ryan have anything? Um, I think Klika just wants to spend some time catching up with uh, Caracol and uh, Margay. Just like find out what happened to the weird gunk snowman that they captured and what they've been up to since they got back to the city. Uh, fill them in on our travels, stuff like that. Also paint, paint it in the ground with, like, with a stick like she does sometimes. Pointedly makes Jarzak smaller than her in all of the images. I also like to believe that Klika's illustrations always show like how little kids draw, where it's just like the head and then the four limbs dangling off of it with like three fingers and that little like fork shape. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, I like mm -hmm. to imagine that's how Klika draws all of the party. <laughs> but um, with the, yeah, just torsos with faces. But um, at, yeah, what they basically tell you is when they brought the gunky snowman back, they are reluctant to tell you, but they did get 500 gold pieces from it. And so they give you guys 100 gold pieces on location uh, to split amongst yourselves, saying that you definitely did help out with one of the harder parts of the whole job. So they do feel it's fair that you guys get paid back. 
But Caracol tries to pull back on this by saying he is risking his life to show you how to get to this place. So he feels that it's pretty much an even squared deal no matter how you look at it. Anton doesn't take the gold, so if the rest of the party needs it, he'll say that's a fair pay for their assistance this time around. Norhill's not going to argue one way or the other. If somebody shoves gold into his hands, he's not going to say no. But, you know, this is their living, and it's probably for the best that they keep it. I think it's going to recoup the cost of the letter she sent. Fair enough. She also refused the reward the first time. So it's fine. Fair enough. So what about Jarzak? Are you going to take a cut of the loot? Uh, no. Okay. So that uh, Norhill is gifted the uh, rest of the money, which is 75 gold pieces, which Caracol reluctantly hands over in a well-counted, evenly handed bag. And with that, they also explain that since then, they've done a lot of scouting and reconnaissance work, having seen plenty of those strange metallic beings that you guys have seen. Not the horrors that could fly, but the soldiers made of metal and kind of bound together in skin like that. And explain that they've done a lot of scouting, but through the use of a lot of illusion spells and a lot of, you know, their ranger skills, they've been able to divert a lot of forces. But clearly there are groups that are looking to kind of lay down perimeters and set up like you know what i mean important strategic points which terrifies them but they believe that they're well enough secured on the coastline that if anything serious did happen there would hopefully be some sort of way around it but anybody listening to caracol explain this can tell that he's purposefully leaving out logical points here that would kind of lead you to believe he doesn't think this is going to work out so it's clear that he's trying to pitch certain points you know what i'm saying um, so who else wanted to do something for the improv travel? Anton's biggest concern is how did the this is more just speculation of like how did it happen that the Herald of Steel made near copies of himself? He's still frightened by the vision of it. He doesn't understand how something like that could have happened, how it was made. It just it worries him. It's like, what was that? Was that just an illusion? Was that actually a part of him? And so with that, Caracol and Margay both kind of just shrug a bit. And Caracol, again, being the more knowledgeable of the two of them, he just says that the magics of the area are typically illusion and enchantment spells. And anything like this that's meant to bound souls and create strange contraptions, he says that's a kind of magic that's made for harming, whereas the illusion and enchantment spells are made for making life nice, pretty, and enjoyable, which he firmly believes is the duty of all magics. So he just says he has no clue why, and he says kind of like, and this is why we shouldn't know why. He's like, they only make bad stuff. Marge is busy kind of doodling next to Klika. Uh, she, she keeps trying to dry herself a little bit bigger than Klika. <laughs> is just keep extending the legs. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Half a what mile about, from the camp. What about you? Yeah, what about Norhill and Jarzak? Uh, Norhill is going to spend a lot of time like preparing himself for the battle ahead because you know obviously even like you know weird pseudo undead dragons are definitely nothing to sneeze at. 
Um, so, you know, he's just going to think about, like, potential tactics, uh, ask uh, Caracol and Margay what they know about the caves and the surrounding area, and, you know, just sort of, yeah, so that he can feel a little good about going into this. So, for once, Caracol doesn't know much about anything up there, but Margay, who spent a lot of time running up to the place, explains that uh, there are quite a many rust monsters that make their home at the entrance to the cave, but Caracol, I mean, uh, but Margay also says that they're usually not mean creatures, and they'll only be pressed to harm if cornered and aggressive, um, or at least threatened, rather, uh, but for the most part, I mean, they're just trying to eat metal. And so usually they can be distracted with some fine steel, you know, or some big piece of metal that's, you know, capable of being broken down. Um, but she says that the closest she ever got was something out of a nightmare, or as she approached the uh, entrance to the place, she saw a reflection of herself come running around the same corner and stare at her with bold and blazing eyes in a way that struck her to her core, and she ran away. Yeah, that's monster. something to be concerned about. Also, Anton, just rust monster. Can <laughs> rust monsters be tamed? Uh, from what Caracol is willing to tell you, he's heard word that nasty little beasts like kobolds have in the past found ways to tame them using stone weapons with wooden you know, shafts and stuff like that. They don't really fear their metals being broken down, and thus they can train them to kind of guard entrances and feed them with weapons and stuff that they find. And they make for good guard dogs against, you know, heavily armored and armed adventurers. So whether or not these ones are tame is difficult to say. He assumes that it's because they're just attracted to the rust monster stuff. I mean, the uh, rusty dragon stuff. Anton's just speculating. Rusty Dragon. Rusty Dragon likes to eat if it does like to eat metal steel things. Why don't we just why don't we just use it to like eat the Herald Steel or some stuff? Like just eat his army. And <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> That's it. We'll just oh. ride in on a legion of, of uh rust monsters. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> just tear through them. But that might yeah. work. That might work. Probably. Probably. I assume so. That That's really the flaw with my whole campaign is just a squad of, of rust monsters coming in. And, yeah. Yeah. The only weakness being if, you know, the Herald of Steel using his infinite power was able to somehow kill a legion of giant German shepherds that like to eat metal, you know? If he could find a way to just kill them, kind of like how he killed legions of armed soldiers. If there was only a way to do it. Nah, I'm just kidding. But anyway. A priest got a dream. <laughs> yeah right priest gonna priest on the back of a rust monster so uh what else we got uh jarzak's gonna find time to maybe be a little off on his own and he's gonna try something uh he's gonna try talking to his sword that wiggles every now and then on him but uh Hey, uh, sword, can you hear me? And so, as you mention this, you can feel it vibrate a little bit at your touch. Uh, 
protected. It is is it you who protected Anton that day with the deceiver? And so with that, the blade kind of beckons you to pull it open. I imagine this is at night when you're able to sneak off quietly. Yeah, probably. Okay. Living so as you darkness. unsheathe the blade, knowing that it's kind of yearning to be pulled open, as you pull it open, you can tell as the uh, a projection kind of distant, uh, it shoots from the blade, almost as if all the points along the blade come to one, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a focal point somewhere in the middle, and it shoots a projection down to the ground, which blossoms up in the moonlight into a full-sized man, the uh, swordsman from the forest, and he stands before you in a very powerful, that yet humbled pose, as he's a bit shorter than you. Uh, he looks back at you with his arms crossed in sort of a strong and stoic pose, and he says to you, he just kind of returns, and he says, I was there to protect her, but it was with your hand that guided such protections. He says, I think you know it is true that you have the strength to do much, but if you abandon your hope and your belief in yourself, I will no longer help you. I will help any of those who have the ability to help themselves. I will protect those who wish to push themselves and become the best they can. But as soon as you stop striving for excellence, greatness, and the highest caliber of being, I will leave until I find another who is worthy. You are worthy, no matter what he may say. And if I have to protect you in order for you to achieve that greatness, I, as well as everyone else who has ever perfected their craft with this blade, will stand before you and welcome you to the halls of the blade. Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to hurt my friends. And I just don't don't know a way to stop him. And so that he kind of turns away and he says, my greatest of purpose was to serve the king. And I did. I was the greatest swordsman in all the Legion. But unfortunately, the day that I died was the day that I could not handle the guilt of what I had done. I wavered in my duty. I saw what the king's men were capable of after witnessing them using their power for evils. I fought and killed my entire legion, a whole squadron of men who were willing to uphold such unlawful acts. I lost myself to my lawful tendencies. One may call me lawful stupid, but I had lost myself. And after doing what I did, I lost the will to continue onward in excellence. I submitted myself to the blade. I had done much in my life, but unfortunately my time had come to an end. I could not live with the guilt of knowing what I had done. And I could not live bearing the mark of allowing it up to that point. We all have our battles and we all have things that we fight, things that push us to our greatest limits. While I may not be the heat in the furnace, I promise I will help give you the strength to continue to hammer away and harden the steel that will make you the finest of swordsmen. And he turns back to you in a spectral form as he begins to kind of fade away. And he says, if the deceiver is 
your finest battle. I, as well as the rest of the swordsmen, masters of the craft, will stand behind you to make sure you are well armed and ready to take on whatever you are capable of. And with that, he sort of fades off in the moonlight as a cloud ventures in front of the moon, cutting off that refracting light. Okay. And in the background, you can hear John Williams just... (laughs) My sword can talk. That was awesome. Like, I was just looking for directions. I don't need that fucking guilt trip. (laughs) But, okie dokie. Well, that seems to be everybody. So, by morning light, the party ventures on the rest of the trip at the uh, foot of the Keratos Mountains. These ones on the coastline. And these ones on the south side of the mountains, where you guys have gone to the Keratos Mountains on the west. And you've traveled alongside the north side of it. But now you guys are on the south of it. Uh, You can tell that there's tons of jutting rocks out here that sort of uh, fragment off and leave a bunch of different rocky coves. But Caracol and Marge are very well equipped to point to you exactly the direction you'd be heading in to get in there. And as you guys are pointed in that direction, is there anything you'd like to do before venturing to the uh, halls of the Rusty Dragon? No. Oh, yeah, pray I don't for luck. So. <laughs> and so that Caracol and Margay point to a tree that they're gonna climb up in and hang out in for the time being, saying that this seems like something you guys can handle, but they wish you the best of luck. And so with that the party ventures off towards one of the little rocky outcroppings heading into the mountainside here. And as you guys begin to head off this way, you guys can hear the sounds of Tons of chittering and what could only be described as a whomping as the sound of sort of beefy bodies sort of flop like giant frogs from rock to rock, laying a very bodily meaty sound of just plop, plop, plop. And as you guys walk between two large rocky ridges in this little kind of alleyway leading up to a sort of a large turn into a cave mouth, you guys can see a group of at least six of these strange-looking rust monsters dangling on rocks overhead, looking at you guys with small slavering mouths and little dangling feathery-tipped uh, antennae on their head, kind of darting back and forth agitatedly in your general direction. All of them facing generally for Norhill and Jarzak. And that is where we're going to end it. Hey everyone, I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. It really means a lot to me to have everybody listening in. And if you have anything you'd like to say, any comments or anything like that, shoot me a tweet over at ygrognard on Twitter. Or you can even send me an email at youngbrognard at gmail.com. I look forward to everything you guys have to say, and it's always a pleasure to engage with anybody listening to the show. And as always, be sure to keep things... Unconscious.